this time of the year to have some of our college students who are home. I've looked around. I see Adam Hagen's here. It's good to see you, Adam. I saw Emily Prado, Hugo Rodriguez is here, and Brian and Jeff Hassler are here. Beth Hedrick is here. We have some students who are in town all the time who go. Gina Smith is a college student here in town. There are others who are here that I'm probably missing. I know the Ng children were here. They probably already returned. I know that Ian Gibson returned early this morning. We have a lot of our students who are away at college. It's always a pleasure to be able to have you guys come home for a while, and we welcome you home this weekend. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Philippians today, fourth chapter, Philippians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, according to the Washington Bureau of Standards, a 100 feet deep fog covering a seven square block area of a city. Imagine this, 100 feet deep, seven square blocks, is made up of 60,000 million drops of water. But if those drops of water were all to be condensed into one regular 16 ounce glass, the water would not come up to the top of that glass. Now, Anyone would agree that a fog of that magnitude paralyzes a city in its grip, all out of proportion to its substance. By the same token, worry has the capacity to paralyze a person all out of proportion to its substance. Worry, like God, is no respecter of persons, however. Worry is a destructive force. It saps us of our energy. Worry is something that is out of God's will for our lives. In fact, to be quite frank with you this morning, worry is sinful. Jesus himself says as much in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, this is what the Word of God says. Jesus says, Do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that true? It's absolutely true. Why is it wrong to worry about tomorrow? Well, James picks this theme up in the book of James, the fourth chapter, and he's addressing some merchants, and he's addressing this businessman, and he says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen today or tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills. We will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast and you brag, and all such boasting is evil. Why is it evil? It's because worrying about tomorrow or doing things regarding the future without including God in them. And by the way, when we include God in our concerns about tomorrow, He just takes the worry right out of tomorrow. Because He's already been there. Because of His omnipresence. He's an eternal being and He knows what's going to happen tomorrow before it ever happens. And He loves you if you're His child. If you're a born-again Christian, He cares very deeply about you. And He wants the best for your life. Therefore, you can rest assured that whatever comes your way tomorrow will not necessarily be devastating to you if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in what happens Tomorrow. The reason that fretting about tomorrow is evil because it's assuming responsibility for something which belongs to God. Tomorrow belongs to God. The future is God's. And if we live too much in the future, 
then we rob God of his spontaneity regarding the future. Now, God is a planned person. I mean, he knows what's going to happen. But when you look at the life of Jesus, he didn't have a blueprint for what was going to happen. He didn't have his calendar planned out for a whole year. He knew that his time was coming. It's probably questionable as to whether he knew it would be 3.3 years before he would go to the cross, if that's exactly how long it took. It's not quite clear that he knew all that, but what he did know was that God was the one who had orchestrated the circumstances and could be counted on to continue to orchestrate the circumstances of Jesus' life so that Jesus' plan would be fulfilled as far as God was concerned. In the book of Hebrews, this is what Jesus is recorded as saying. I have come to do the will of God. And he lived in that on a daily basis. And you and I need to understand that if we're going to overcome worry, we're going to have to live the same way. In this passage of Scripture, which we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul addresses the issue of worrying. And he uses the same word which Jesus used in Matthew 6.34 when Jesus says, Do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He uses that word in verse 6. And I'm going to isolate these beginning words of verse 6. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And you please follow along in whichever version you have. Be anxious for nothing. The word translated be anxious is the word which literally means to debate something anxiously in one's mind. Do you ever have that happen in your mind? Do you ever have this ongoing debate over things which stir up all kinds of anxiety in your life? Well, in that case, you're being anxious. Now, what's interesting about this command, and there are several commands in these brief verses of Scripture which we're considering together today, what's interesting about this command is that the nature of it, the tense of it, and the construction of it in the original language of the New Testament means stop being anxious about everything or anything. Stop it. Now, remember to whom was the book of Philippians written? Well, obviously, to the Philippians. Now, what do we know about the Philippians? They were believers in Jesus Christ. They were Christians. And he says, stop it. So it's quite likely that you, if you're a born-again Christian, wrestle with this issue of worrying. And what the Word of God says to you and to me is, stop it. Don't be anxious. The Bible doesn't merely tell us to stop it. But if you've ever noticed in the Bible, and specifically in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about putting off the old man, and putting on the new man. The imagery he uses here is the image of someone undressing and then putting on a different set of clothing. Put off worry, and the Apostle Paul, in his typical style here, gives us some things to put in its place. How are you and I going to overcome worrying in our lives? Well, the Apostle is very clear in giving us four steps in that direction, beginning with verse 4. Notice verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And by the way, this is a plural command, which simply means this. It's also a present tense command. Y'all keep on rejoicing in the Lord always. I will say it again. Y'all keep on rejoicing is what he was saying. This is not an occasional activity for a select group of Christians. This is to be characteristic of all of us who claim to know Jesus Christ. We are to learn, and here's the first step, and if we get this one right, actually all the rest will fall into place. If we get this one down, then the other three will be a piece of cake. Okay, here it is. We're to praise the Lord for everything. Now, that's a tall order. This separates the men from the boys spiritually. 
When you can learn to praise the Lord for everything, to rejoice in the Lord. And notice, he does not say rejoice in yourself or rejoice in your circumstances. Because in myself, I may have a disposition that lends itself to worrying. I mean, maybe more melancholy, more pessimistic by nature. Therefore, there's going to be more than an ordinary amount of worrying going on in my mind. I don't, I'm not to rejoice in Mike Woods. Nor am I to rejoice in my circumstances, because my circumstances, not unlike your circumstances, from time to time, are filled with difficulty. Right? Right. We all face difficulty in our lives. But I'm to rejoice in the Lord. Have you noticed how frequently the Apostle Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, or in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in the Lord? Have you noticed how often he uses that? The picture is, if you were to think of Jesus as being a big circle, if you're a Christian, where are you? You're in Jesus. And you're surrounded by Him. Now, what do we know about Jesus Christ? I liked what I read yesterday, that Jesus is God's Christmas name for Himself. Remember what the angel said to Joseph when he was telling him the name to give to the son that Mary was bearing, God's son, whom Joseph was going to foster father. Remember the name? He said, you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is a Savior, and this is no weenie Savior, by the way. No wimp Savior. This is the God through whom all things came into being. In John chapter 1, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not God Jr., by the way. God on a par with God the Father and God the Spirit. All things came into being through Him. What does that tell you about Jesus? The whole creation was executed through Jesus. Everything that was created. This is an all-powerful God. And He is full of grace and truth, the Bible tells us, in that same passage in the book of John chapter 1, which means not only is He just hard, pure, unadulterated truth, but He is a gracious God. He's an all-loving. He's all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving. Rejoice in that kind of Lord. That's why we can praise the Lord for everything. Doesn't it make sense that we can have an attitude of praising the Lord regardless of our circumstances? Now, I don't know what kind of negativity is going on in your life today, but more than likely, most of the people here could pinpoint something negative which is happening in your life. What are you to do with that negativity? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And such an attitude spills over into our interpersonal relationships, this praising the Lord for everything. Look at verse 5. Let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. We sang, my deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. Listen, he is near. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's more actually than near. He's in us, according to Scripture. If we know Jesus, He is in us. And the result of that is that we will have a gentle spirit. This word is one of those very interesting and rather rich words of the New Testament. It's a word which opposite, it's, whose opposite means this, thoughtlessness and stubbornness. This word, which is translated gentleness or forbearing spirit, is a word which means an uncomplaining, now listen, an uncomplaining readiness to accept people as they are and to yield your rights to them as long as the yielding of your rights does not call for the compromising of your principles. This is the person who knows 
when it's time to lose in human relationships. And do you know why this person can lose without feeling put down? Is because the person knows that his or her security is not in being respected by other people. His or her security is in his or her relationship with Jesus Christ. And their value, those people's value, is based upon the position that person has in Christ. I hope you understand that if you're in Christ, you have everything you will ever need. You have all the respect, so much respect that God gave His only Son to die for you. That's how much love and respect the Father has for you and for me because we're in Christ. This is a word which is really tested in the Spirit when we think about our relationships with hard-to-get-along-with people. Is there anyone in your life who is hard to get along with? You know what you're supposed to do about that? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit, let your gentleness be evident to the hard to get along with people in your life. Do you have any intimidating people in your life? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be evident to all. Why? Because Christ is near. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to stand up and position yourself and show how strong you are. Why? Because the Bible is very clear. We have someone who is fighting our battles for us. Do you remember what God told Moses when Moses was between the devil and the deep blue sea? He was really the deep red sea because the red sea was here. And there was the cloud of the glory of God separating Moses and those two million plus Israelites who were on their way out of Egypt. And then behind that was the ferocious army of Pharaoh. Now, what did the Lord say? I can only imagine what would have been heard by those Israelites through that vapor. It was separating, but that vapor. They were probably cursing God and saying, we're coming after you. You remember how we used to whip you when you were slaves? You ain't seen nothing yet. We're coming to get you. And this is what God said to Moses. Be still. The Lord will fight for you. Be still. And the way in which the word be still is used in Hebrew, it's used two ways. It's very interesting the way in which this word is used. It's, meant, it's used in one sense to mean don't say anything. Put a hand over your mouth. It's reminiscent of what Jesus did when he was brought to trial. Did Jesus say much? He said very little. He was like a sheep led before his shearers dumb or his slaughterers dumb. It's be quiet. But it's not only that. This word be still, it's found in Exodus 14. 14 is also used for this. Don't listen. Don't listen to what other people are saying about you. How can you have a forbearing spirit? It's because the Lord will fight for you. Are you in a fight in some human relationship today in your home or at work or at school or in some other social relationship? Then what you need to do is let the Lord fight for you. Give it up. Let the Lord fight for you. Learn to rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be evident to all men. The Lord is near. So, this is the beginning point. This is the way that you're going to really win in life over worry. I've mentioned recently of reading the biography of John Adams. And I finished the book this last week. And the last chapter in the book is entitled... Rejoice evermore. It's taken from a sentence 
which John Adams wrote to his longtime friend, a fellow signer of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Rush, a medical doctor in Philadelphia. They didn't see each other. They had a long period of correspondence, several years. They didn't see each other. And this is what he wrote to his friend, Benjamin Rush. He said, The phrase, Rejoice evermore, shall always be in my heart, my memory, and my mouth as long as I live, if I can help it. Now, he was 64 years of age when he left office and he wrote those words. He was squeezed out of office. He was much maligned. He was vilified in the press. He was opposed not only by the Republicans who were having Thomas Jefferson as their candidate, and Jefferson was a supposed friend, by the way, of John Adams, running against him for the presidency rather than supporting him. But he was also opposed by people within his own Federalist Party. The reason he probably only had one term was because he was not a political animal by nature. He spoke what he thought. He was a great leader in our nation. In fact, what you would discover if you studied his life carefully, he's probably to be credited for keeping this nation from going under in its early years. If we had entered into a war with France, which was the prevailing thought of the day, we would have been history, literally. But he chose not to enter into such a war, regardless of what his people in his party and the Republicans were telling him to do. He said that great statement, rejoice evermore, and he had in mind either this passage of Scripture or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which says the same thing. He was a very devout Christian man. He said that, and listen to what happened to him during this time in his life. His beloved daughter, his only daughter, Nabby, died prematurely of breast cancer. His wife, Abigail, who was his best friend, died soon thereafter. He had a son named Charles, who, when Charles was a teenager, was really the apple of his eye. He had three sons who survived infancy, Thomas, Charles, and, of course, we know John Quincy, who later became president of the United States also. But Charles died of cirrhosis of the liver. He was an alcoholic. He was ashamed of the family. He had that happen to him. He had all kinds of physical ailments in addition to that. He lived 26 years, not after he came out of the presidency, from the age of 64 to 90, when probably the average lifespan was probably somewhere in the the colonies or the United States, somewhere around 50. He lived to be 90. How did he live from 64 to 90? It's because he learned to live by... What he said, rejoice evermore. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. You want to win over worry? Then be a person who praises the Lord for everything. The second thing is, we need to pray about everything. Look at verses 6 and 7. Stop being anxious, being anxious for anything, but in everything, notice that, by prayer, and here's a key idea here. The word which is translated prayer seems so innocent to our English reading eyes. But the word which is translated prayer here is the word which literally carries with it the idea of extolling or praising the Lord. That's the most basic idea. It's the idea of contemplating God. Have you ever stopped to contemplate God? Most of the time when we think about prayer, we think about rushing into God's presence and asking God for something. But what does the Bible teach? The Bible is very clear that we are to pray in a contemplative way. To pause long enough in the midst of all the busyness and the stress of our lives just to consider God. All theological error and all errors of Christian practice can be traced back to a faulty understanding of who God is. We need to understand who God is. 
Our God is a sovereign God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. That's the beginning point. In the most recent general elections, a man named Jim Talent was elected senator from Missouri. This man is Jewish. It was not until he was an adult that he came to believe and receive Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He's a brilliant man, a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. He came to Christ as he was driving down the road one day listening to a program, just like we have on 1590 AM, Arnie and Pam, KELP here in our city, where this program is aired Monday through Friday, the James Dobson program. And Luis Palau, who's been to our city to preach the gospel, was the guest of Dr. Dobson. And at the end of the interview, Luis Palau called the listening audience to faith in Jesus. Jim Talent pulled his car off on the side of the road. This Jewish man, brilliant young lawyer, prayed to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. He became the representative of a district in the St. Louis, Missouri area for four consecutive terms. He was secure in that position when he was prompted by his cohorts, and as he prayed about it, he felt like God was leading him to go into this avenue of public service to run for governor in the year 2000 in Missouri. Now, do you remember what happened in Missouri in heavily Democratic, he's a Republican, heavily Democratic precincts? In St. Louis, they were left open way after 7 o'clock. And you remember how there was this outcry among Republicans that there had been voter fraud? In fact, the left-leaning liberal newspaper of St. Louis even brought out the fact that they found a dog's name who had been registered to vote, and the dog had somehow been able to manage the voting booth and voted. Well, it was speculated that what would happen is that there would be a lawsuit against the system and there would be a re-vote. But you know, there was nary a peep from Jim Talent, nor from John Ashcroft, I might add. Nary a peep. The next two years, from 2000 to 2002, were not spent exclusively by Jim Talent preparing to run for senator to defeat Gene Carnahan, whom he defeated by a rather narrow margin. They were not spent doing that primarily, although a lot of his energy was devoted to that. But do you know that a big part of his energy was devoted, he's a member of the Presbyterian Church of America, to learning how to share Jesus Christ with other people? He learned the evangelism explosion approach to sharing Jesus, and he led a lot of people to Christ. A lot of the people in his church there in the St. Louis area are Christians because he shared his faith. This is what he said in a recent interview. He says in trying to explain the calmness that he experienced. He said this, I do believe that God governs in the affairs of men in that he raises up whom he wants to raise up and he humbles whom he wants to humble. That's a man who understands what it means to pray about everything, to rejoice in the Lord always. How could he have that attitude? Is that just a placebo, just sort of a sugar pill that Christianity has given to us to swallow so that we won't be ruffled by all the difficulties of life? I don't think so. I think rather it's the picture of a person who knows God and who understands that if God needs me to get beat in some political effort to be humbled, by all means, go for it, God. Because I need to be humbled. And what you and I need to understand is what the writer of Hebrews says, 
He says in Hebrews chapter 12, Endure hardship as discipline. This is part of the way that God works in our lives to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. We need to understand that we're not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, beginning with worshiping the Lord, contemplating God, by prayer and supplication or petition, if you have the NIV, this is being specific with thanksgiving at this Thanksgiving time of the year. You know, every day should be Thanksgiving for a believer. Every day. We should have every, a moment should be a moment of thanksgiving to the Lord. Every circumstance, every relationship should be a matter of giving thanks. Let your requests be made known to God. And by the way, all these commands throughout this passage of Scripture are in the present tense, which means we're always to do these things. Not just occasionally, but always we're to do these things. Now, what is interesting, and it would miss, we would miss it if we were not careful, is there's never a promise of the prayer that we've offered being answered. Have you noticed that? There's no promise that the prayers I offered to the Lord are going to be answered. But there is the promise that's given in verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the peace of God which comes... Have you had this experience? I could give testimony after testimony of how I have gone to this very passage of Scripture when my life seemed to be turned upside down and I've begun to meditate on this passage of Scripture and I'm reminded of who God is and how the Lord is near. And the result has been that I've had this incomprehensible peace flood my mind and my heart. And where I was all upset and agitated, all of a sudden, there was just this calm that settled over my spirit and my soul. How do we explain that? It's because God has produced the peace. As I've contemplated Him and recognized who He is and know that He's a sovereign God, God has produced the peace in my life. And it guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And the word guard is the word to set a sentry. In other words, God's peace does guard duty around the perimeter of my heart and around the perimeter of my mind to protect me. Well, here's the third thing. In addition to praising the Lord continually and to praying about everything, here's the third thing. Be positive. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, and this is the word of True in reality, cold, hard facts. For instance, it would be the word that would be applied to the truthfulness of the geometric equation, pi r squared equals the area of a circle. That kind of truth, just truth. So whatever is true in that sense, whatever is honorable, this comes from the word to revere or to worship. Whatever is right, this carries with it the idea of duty, get this, duty faced and duty done. The reason we know that is it's used in a covenant of marriage found in one, from 170 A.D. about the commitment that the two parties, in a prenuptial as it were, wrote down that they would be, as it were, right in their relationship. They would fulfill their duty as husband and wife to each other. It's that kind of word. Whatever is pure, and the idea here is that which is pure in the eyes of God. My thoughts must be not only true and noble and right, but they should be pure. I should work at maintaining pure thoughts in my life. Now, it's true of all of us, even the most godly person present, that from time to time you have ugly thoughts crossing your mind. Guess who puts those ugly thoughts there? The devil puts those thoughts there. It's like Martin Luther 
said when he was talking about the difference between temptation and sin, he said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you certainly can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You don't have to dwell on those ugly thoughts, those impure thoughts. But those are the pure thoughts are the kind of thoughts that we're to have in relationship to the Lord. Whatever is lovely, this word was used and found frequently on epitaphs of gravestones to describe the amiability or the beauty of a person's character. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is good repute. Whereas I've already talked about things in my thought life should be so pure that God can look at them. Also, these are things which I say in my mind. Now, I don't know about you, but I say a lot more negative things in my mind than I say with my mouth. Now, remember what Brother John Adams said. He said, this phrase shall never be out of my heart. Right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Is what the Bible says. What's in the well comes up in the bucket is a paraphrase of that. What's in me is going to come out of me. So what am I to focus on? Having not only things that are pure in God's sight, but pure for God's ears, things of good repute. Is there anything excellent? This is the common word for excellence, which is used. It's used to describe the excellence of a tool outside the Bible. It's used to describe the excellence of an animal. It's used to describe the excellence of a soldier's courage exhibited in battle. And if anything is worthy of praise, in other words, anything that will, would get God's approval, let your mind keep on dwelling, is what the word says, on these things. And the word translated dwell is the word logizomai. It's the word from which we get our word logic or logical. And the idea here is to ponder and evaluate these true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy things. To focus on those things, okay? And when I focus on those things, I let my mind dwell on those things. The idea of logizomai, to dwell on it, is not just to think about it, but to have a behavioral change as a result of thinking about it. My life will be different, and yours will be too, if we commit ourselves to a life of being positive. This is not the power of positive thinking. Sorry, Norman Vincent. It's not that. Rather, this is the power of the positive thinker. Who was the most positive thinker who ever lived? Jesus. And who lives in you and me if we know Jesus? Jesus lives in us. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have the mind of Christ. We already have it. How do we have it? Does that mean we're as intelligent as Jesus? No. What it does mean, however, is that we have Him in us and we have His Word. That's why Paul writes in the book of Colossians, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. The men and women, boys and girls, who saturate our minds and our hearts with the Word of God. And what will the result be? We will be positive. Worry will try to inch its way in, but those positive thoughts will ward worry off. Correct? Well, here's the last thing, and this won't take long. It's be obedient. Look at verse 9. The things you have learned or received or heard or seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now, the Apostle Paul never claimed that what he wrote was Scripture on a par with the Old Testament. However, his contemporary and co-apostle, Peter, said this much about the writings of Paul. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he said, Paul's writings are sometimes hard to understand, but they are Scripture. 
So when Paul says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, this is what he was saying. What I have said to you is true. You need to not only hear it, but you need to practice it. You need to be obedient to the Lord. Now notice the other thing which Paul says, or seen in me, he says, or seen in me. Now, it's one thing for me to stand here before you, many if not most of you who have suffered a lot more in your life than I have, and may be suffering right now as I speak, suffering from worrisome, troublesome situations in your life. It's one thing for me to stand here in my ivory tower and to speak to you about such matters. But remember who the first author of these statements was. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Paul. God through Paul, yes. Think about the Apostle Paul. What were his circumstances? What were the man's circumstances? Well, he was an old guy. He was physically infirmed. He had glaucoma, perhaps, or some other eye disease. He couldn't see well anymore. He was a man who had a thorn in the flesh. He was abandoned by most people whom he loved. He was a man who was on death row. He was a man who had all kinds of problems. But what did he do? What did he do? He praised the Lord, didn't he? Do you remember when he first went to Philippi? What happened when he went to Philippi? When he got there, he began to preach the gospel. But he was thrown into jail. But before he was thrown into jail, what happened to him? He was publicly dishonored with a beating. He was beaten publicly. He and his companion Silas. And they found themselves in the bowels of a dungeon in Philippi at midnight. And what were they doing? Instead of whining and complaining and crying, what were they doing? They were singing praises to the Lord. Now, this man lived what he taught. He lived it. So this message, hopefully, is understood from his perspective. Not from my perspective, but from his perspective. Be obedient to what he says, because he's lived it. And he's found that God is not wanting. God is well able to do what he promises to do. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble... Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Isaiah forty-eight eighteen says, If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river. I grew up on the banks of the Mississippi River. I can't tell you how many times I've watched that river. I've never seen big waves on the river like I've seen in the Gulf of Mexico or on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean or the coast of the Pacific Ocean. I've never seen big waves on the Mississippi. But I'll tell you what, it's a powerful force. And it's a calm force. That's the kind of peace that God wants to offer all of us. Do not be anxious about anything. Stop it. Instead, we need to praise the Lord for everything. Pray about everything. Be positive. Focus on the truth. And then be obedient to what the Lord says. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you now to help us to live this truth in our lives. We all need it, Lord. Thank you for the truth of your word that we can meditate on this passage.
and draw great peace from you through it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.